0: Well, hi again. Great to see all of you. I think I met a good portion of you. Uh, I should have maybe asked this the last time I did it, which was a few weeks ago, but I uh, encouraged those who are spread out to move forward, and I should have asked, is it required of you as a congregation, I know you're masked, to be socially distant during corporate worship? I just need to know I should have asked this. It's not. So for those of you who are able to and willing, I'm going to ask you to sort of just come closer. If you're able to, just get get uncomfortable together. I'm asking you. You just were on a retreat. I'm guessing you rub shoulders and you're going to. But if you're able to, come closer, but uh, no pressure on that. And while we're uh, getting situated, um, thank you. This is great, I didn't, thank you so much. I have done it before, well I have, my wife Joanna can testify to this, and by the way, I am Mary, there she is. Uh, you can, you wanna take your mask? Just take, take off your mask so they can get a sense of who you, what you look like, so. Um, we were gonna bike here, and then the weather looked inclement, and, uh, and she kind of begged me not to, so. Um, and while you're getting situated, I want you to imagine uh, a scenario. Uh, imagine that a, a new law went into effect just this morning. Uh, you get notification on your phone, on your feed, um, in your news that in the U.S., uh, effective now, immediately it's illegal to be a Christian. And so that would obviously include what we're doing right now, uh, gathering on worship on Sunday afternoons even having a conversation with anyone about Jesus would be considered illegal. In short, if anyone was publicly identified as a Christian, uh, you'd be arrested and thrown into jail. Okay, so that's sort of the first thing I want you to think about. Now let's take it a step further. So now you're in jail for being a Christian, more specifically for telling somebody about Jesus, specifically, that he is God's messiah, savior, and king. And then suppose, just for argument's sake, you're in prison uh, and you're forbidden from making sort of that one allotted phone call. I don't know if there are any lawyers present, I don't know if that's still the case, how it works, but in the movies and TV shows, that's what I have in my mind. And of course, no visitors allowed. Instead, you're only granted a singular form of communication, and that's that you're able to write one letter Uh, A physical letter or an email. So, two questions for all of you. To whom would you write? That's the first question. And what would you write? The answer, of course, to the first question largely depends on who you are and what sort of relationships you have. For those of you who are married uh, or dating, you'd likely write your spouse or your uh, girlfriend, boyfriend. Um, Maybe you'd write your parents. Maybe you'd you'd write a close friend. Now, the second question, what would you write? That could be more complicated. But here in the U.S., comfort is king, and our rights tend to reign supreme. Here's what I think most of us would write. Get me out of here, right? Wouldn't you get me out of here, send somebody, whatever it takes, to, to, to extricate me from this uh, scenario. Get me a lawyer, post bail, whatever it takes, get me out of prison yesterday. Our sermon text for this afternoon, I, you don't have to imagine such a scenario, for it actually happened. It's a part of history. The Apostle Paul at this point when he's writing uh, in in Colossians, he's imprisoned in either Rome or Ephesus and he writes to this newer church in the city of Colossae which is now a part of modern Turkey. And he's writing of their new life in Christ, what it means to live as followers of Jesus primarily in their relationships with one another. He now turns to concluding his letter. Only now at this point, does he mention that he's actually in prison? And so I ask you to turn uh, with that in mind, uh, with that sort of backdrop to Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. Colossians 4, 2 through 18, and that is up there. So I want to make sure what I'm seeing here is back here as well. OK. Thank you, because I've never done that before, uh, here at least. So, uh, so let as I do so, as I do read this aloud, I ask you to pay attention to a couple of things. I'd like you to consider, first, Paul's priorities. What, what, what are his priorities as, as he's uh, wrapping up his letter? And what's his passion, all right? And so let me read this text now. "'Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving.' seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision, and I'll say of the circumcision party, "'among my fellow workers of the kingdom of God, "'and they have been a comfort to me. "'Epaphras, who is one of you, "'a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, "'always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, "'that you may stand mature "'and fully assured in all the will of God. "'For I bear witness, I bear him witness "'that he has worked hard for you "'and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis.' Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha, and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's word. Before we continue, would you please join me in prayer? Lord, would you now speak through your holy word, your word which we acknowledge is eternal and stands forever. Would you be gracious and grant everyone here in person and online listening ears, seeing eyes, attentive minds, and God, something we can't conjure up ourselves, willing hearts, to not only heed your word, but to love it. For we ask in Christ's precious name, amen. Now before we directly address this, these concluding remarks of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, I want to briefly recap what we talked about the past couple of weeks, the past couple of sermons. Focusing on uh, Matthew chapter 28, uh, Jesus was crucified, he was buried and he's resurrected and he's about to be ascended into heaven and before that happens he gathers his 11 disciples who meet him in Galilee and he gives them the great commission go into all the world tell people about me um Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lo, I'm with you to the end of the age, right? That's part of, the, of what's bound up in the Great Commission. And I broke up, sort of I did a two-sermon series. The first focused on uh, the, uh, the parameters of the Great Commission, that Jesus has all power and he has he's imminent. So he has all power and rule and authority that brackets the Great Commission but he also says at the end, I am with you to the end of the age. So two things I want us to remember, he's sovereign, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's above all rulers, authorities, etc. but also he is imminent, he is with us. That's where we get Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That's the first thing. The second thing we talked about was the, the, the last sermon I preached on was the commission itself, what's bound up in that commission. What does it mean to go, move out, make disciples? Especially for you, for this church, a church which is in transition. What do you do while you're waiting for things to sort of uh, get solidified? What do you do while you're waiting for, uh, as a church in a part of the Presbyterian Church in America, to become, as I mentioned, particularized? You're a mission church right now. One day, Lord willing, you'll. You'll transition to that becoming a particularized church, self-sustaining. You'll have your own elders and deacons, and you'll be financially self-sustaining. Those two things together. But here's the thing: I encouraged you to not move on from mission. You're going to always, you're to always be, along with the all, all of the church, a, a church on mission for Jesus. About doing, about going, to, being concerned about the business of King Jesus. So the commission that he gave his disciples 2,000 years ago is still applicable to every single Christian today. It's why, partly in large measure, why he saved you, to go and make learning disciples of him. All right. Sixty years later, roughly, we have now the Apostle Paul, the one who was a part of being a witness to the first martyr in the church, Stephen, who was stoned to death. And now he's a church planner, and he's a missionary, Paul. And <clears throat> note, uh, as I mentioned before, his passions and his priorities. And indeed, that's the sermon title uh, for this sermon, which is a, a Prisoner's Passion, Prayer, Proclamation, and Partnerships. That's, that's the title. And if you want to, you can write. If it's not on your order of worship, I know if you turn it over, uh, for those of you that have a writing instrument, you could write that down, or if you're on your smartphone, I encourage you to take some notes. I'll try to keep this uh, simple and to give you some nuggets uh, as you move forward individually and collectively as a church on mission. Let's look at how Paul ends this wonderful letter, and we're going to take those three things prayer, proclamation, and partnership in order. Let's begin with. Uh, the first thing, which is Paul's passion. And notice how he ends his letter, uh, and it it really bookends how it began. If you even want to flip, if you're in the very first, the opening words of Colossians, which is the importance of prayer. The importance of prayer. How does he do, do this? He does this in two ways. First, by a simple encouragement to pray. That's what he means when he says to continue steadfastly in it. That is, to keep on, to keep on, keeping on praying. How? He says to be watchful in it. Watchful meaning keeping awake, to stay alert. Likely awake and alert for answers to prayer. That's the reason he says to be awake and alert for answers to prayer. But along with being watchful is his encouragement to pray, but note how, with thanksgiving, Again, these words that the Apostle Paul writes, they bookend the very beginning of his letter. And when he, when he writes that, he and Timothy always thank God when he prays for them. Now, here's the question. I hope this registered for, for all of you. As, you as I was reading this text out loud and you were following along. Why does Paul emphasize thanksgiving in praying? And how does it relate? How does it relate to prayer? What's the correlation between the two? Especially to be steadfast in it. Dick Lucas gives an answer in his commentary on this letter, and here's what he writes He says that thanksgiving is the best and necessary companion of the prayer that perseveres. Prayer can no more exist without praise than true praise without prayer. The one fuels the other. Do you see what he's saying? There's a co- they're codependent. They have a codependent relationship to one another. The second way that Paul places a high premium on prayer is his very asking for them to pray. Right? Seems sort of uh, obvious, but note what he wants them to pray. He doesn't pray what I think what most of us would pray, which was to get get me out of prison. He doesn't uh, express any retribution for his captors, no. But the very reason for his request, and I think this is astounding, is proclamation. That's, that's, the, that's why he's fundamentally encouraging, he's pleading for the church that he's writing in this new church in Colossae to pray, is to proclaim. Which brings us to our second point, which is Paul's passion. Her proclamation. As the letter progresses, Paul elaborates on the difference the gospel of Jesus makes. He writes that it impacts all of life, vertically between us and God the Father, and then horizontally outward. It pushes outward in our various relationships and roles within the church. He writes even how that affects. Uh, relationships practically within the family and even in your place of employment in the workspace. And so now he concludes his letter. Paul pivots and he directs the reader from inward relationships and responsibilities, meaning inward, the church and family and work, to outward. So he's, he's making this great transition, specifically outward to whom? to the outsiders outsiders meaning those who aren't at least yet in the church they're not considered yet disciples learning followers of jesus how does he do that by pleading for proclamation look with me at verse 4 verse 3 pray also for us what does he want what does he what is his plea what is his passion that god may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of christ now think about it he's in prisons precisely for doing that (laughs) and they know that but he's still telling them pray do this knowing what the consequences unpleasant which may might include death some form of torture or uh maybe look with me at verse four that I may, meaning make it the mystery of Jesus, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, before we discuss the details of his request, let's step back and and reflect on the note, or, or the type of proclamation that Paul here is referring to. Now, in Paul's instance, this is what would be a public proclamation, sort of open street preaching. One can see this in his qualifier to declare what? The mystery of Christ. And it's one he says that he wants to make clear, especially in how he talks. You can see that in verse 4. Now here's the question. Why is this distinction important? Meaning the type of proclamation that Paul's referring to. Well, because not everyone has the calling or the gift of such a proclamation—that is to publicly speak about Jesus. Indeed, this is why he's locked up. On account he writes in verse four, on account of which I am in prison. So it's quite clear that this—that he's in prison—he's not be, not because he was having a private one-on-one conversation with someone about Jesus and some. Somebody sort of outed him, so to speak. That's not what happened. He knew exactly what he was doing when he was doing sort of that open-air preaching uh, in a culture dictated by Roman rule that if he preached publicly about Jesus, off to prison. But Paul's passion to publicly proclaim Jesus outweighed his earthly consequences earthly consequences now i just said that paul's proclamation of jesus of the gospel of jesus the mystery of christ was distinct that it was for preaching publicly as opposed to sort of having a private conversation so here's a question for all of you what role if any does proclamation of the gospel and here I'm, 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 I'm thinking primarily with your lips, with your tongue, your mouth, your speaking. What role does proclamation of the gospel have of Jesus have for Paul's readers, for you, and for me, and for indeed the entire church what in the world today? Well, the answer is plenty. For just as Paul has great responsibility to preach Christ, According to his gift and calling, so does the church. Where do I see that? Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now what's the distinction between Paul's proclamation of Jesus and ours right today? One commentator puts it like this. If Paul's proclamation is direct and and you could say confrontational, ours is responsive. And not merely responsive, but our conduct also plays an important role. Indeed, Paul's emphasis on how we behave as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus uh, is a sort of litmus test for you. It lays the foundation, so to speak, you you could even maybe even say the right. It gives sort of a a right for for our words about Jesus to be even considered. That is to gain a willing audience. Maybe it's an audience of one. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, he writes. But why? For what reason does he write that? Let your speech always be gracious. Well, let me back up. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So here's now he's going to spell out, here's what that should look like. Let your speech always Be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Hence, that's the responsive part that the commentator says, right? Paul is is more uh, direct and confrontational, and ours is more responsive in how we proclaim Jesus to other people. Now, to answer each person about what? not just anything, here Paul is naturally assuming that the way that we live, the way that you live, both vertically between in communion with God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and horizontally outward facing to the church, to to, uh, relationships, to the world, in every sphere of life, not compartmentalized, the gospel impacting every aspect of who you are, what you do, it's going to be so palpably, demonstrably noticeable that outsiders, outsiders that I mentioned earlier, those who aren't yet Christians, they're going to sit up. They're going to sit up and they're going to, they're going to take notice of, of you. And they're going to eventually ask you this question in some way what 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 makes you so different maybe that is it maybe that's happened to you already if you've got family members peers coworkers that what do you why are you here right now where are you going why do you not go to this thing and do this thing i mean they're asked hopefully they're asking those questions already what makes you tick and instead of beating them over their heads with sort of a two-by-four, all in the name of Jesus, Paul is effectively saying this. Words matter. Words matter. More than that, in other words, more than just getting the content of your words right, making sure they're orthodox and line up with historic biblical Christianity, etc., how you speak these words matter. For example... Finally, my wife, I, I keep saying she'd be here. She came today. She's here. Did I bribe you? I didn't bribe you. All right. Now, there's a big difference between we just celebrated our 39th, 20, 29th year of, of mostly wedded bliss. Uh, there's a difference between saying, <clears throat> I, I love you. Right? Emotionless without feeling clinical, that's true, what I just said is true, I I love you, and I love you with warmth and deep affection. Now the same three words, all of which may be true, but what made the difference between the two ways I said it? How you speak them makes all the difference in the world. Similarly, the same goes with you and I when we share the gospel. The good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Yes, get your content right. I'm not talking about making sure you give sort of a pre... This is a, a, How do I put this? For some of you, that may mean you're giving a sort of a pre a practiced, packaged uh, explanation of the gospel from A to Z, all in one sitting. For most of us, though, that's not how talking to people about Jesus works, isn't it? Is it? That's not how it tends to go. It's in little snippets and little aspects of the life, the death, the resurrection, ascension of Jesus in some way that you're sort of bringing to bear in your conversation. Yes, we must get our content right, but how we say it, just as important. So important that how you talk usually determines if you even gain the right to talk about Jesus at all. That's a big statement. I'm going to repeat it because it's significant. How you, how you talk, not merely what you say, but how you say it, will usually determine if you gain the right to talk about Jesus at all. Where do I get this idea from? I I see it right from the text in verse six. He says, speak graciously, meaning, but also without being dreadfully boring, utterly uninteresting. I mean, isn't that the point that Paul has in mind when he says the sort of this idea of salty speech? Now, when he wrote that then, this was something commonly understood in Paul's day, this idea of salty speech. One commentator writes this, piquancy, it's a word I don't think I've ever read before, but P-I-Q-U-A-N-C-Y, it's an important characteristic of the speech that wins people. Now this doesn't necessarily mean using wit. Only that we must consider how gracious words that can be communicated effectively that piques someone's interest. That's what you want to do. I hope when you're talking to people about Jesus, you're thinking about it, like I need to I need to talk to this person. I don't know how. Don't just focus on the content. Focus on communicating in a way that in a way that's going to pique their interest so you can actually have a seat at the table of conversation. And here I'm reminded of the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I'm guessing most of you have seen this film. Uh, Steve Martin and John Candy. Neil, Steve Martin, uh, I think it's sort of midway in the film, he can't take it, he finally lays into poor old Dell, played by John Candy, and he says, you have to discriminate, you choose things, you choose things, in other words, that are, that are funny or mildly amusing or interesting, but you are a miracle. Your stories have none of that. They're not even amusing accidentally. And by the way, you know when you're telling these little stories, here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener, right? For those of you who saw the movie, you know that scene. That's for a movie. That's with Neil and Dell how much more so for the christian we who have the command as well as the privilege to tell people about jesus yes be gracious when you talk don't be a jerk but also be interesting add a little salt in in, in sort of your the way that you speak to others about jesus now, let's admit it, some of us need heavier doses of this saltiness to pique someone's interest in t- talking to others about Jesus than others. All right. We discussed Paul's passion for prayer. That was the first point. And then for proclamation, his and ours. But now we move on to our third and final point, and that's for his passion for proclamation. His passion, pardon, pardon me, there's so many P's. Part in the piece, his passion for partnership. He wraps up this letter, and do you know uh, the common theme as he does so? He lists over 10 people, <laughs> 10 people, most of whom also send their greetings. He includes here Tychicus, not that you shouldn't, you may not know these names, Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristocris, Mark, Justice, Epiphras, and Demas. Verse 15, he then asks them, meaning the church, to greet the church in Laodicea, sort of uh, as well as Nympha, who's a homeowner where a house church meets. Finally, he instructs them to take this letter, read it in the church in Laodicea, as well as read their letter, meaning the Laodiceans' letter, which coincidentally is likely Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So do you see how these sort of relationships are being worked out? Finally, in verse 17 and 18, he says, uh, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Okay. So I read that out loud, and I'm repeating some of it even now, and you're thinking, "What's, what's the point? What are we to make of this apparently random list of names, both of whom send their greetings as well as who Paul sends greetings. And here's what it is that Paul's passion for gospel proclamation greatly impacted others. How much? That Paul's passion became theirs. That is, it was their collective shared passion to proclaim Jesus. Do you see that in that in, in all of that list of the, those names? Yes, undeniably, Paul was a a once-in-a-lifetime catalyst for for the explosion of the early church. But this was a far cry from being primarily Paul's gig, with everyone else kind of on the sideline. Think of like a, a well, let's take Pastor Aiden, right? It's not Pastor Aiden's gig to be the pastor and do the work of the ministry while the church just consumes and, and rests on their laurels, and this is, this is good. Think, keep going, Pastor Aiden, and do the work of the ministry while we, while we don't. I'm not, that's not you, by the way. I'm not suggesting that in any way that's you. So be careful that that, 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 that isn't you. And they were more than consequences, right? These people that he's writing about, the, the, the people that he's naming, they are even friends. They partner together in gospel ministry, Ensuring that this mystery of Christ that he wrote about earlier, that he's the rightful Messiah, Savior, and King, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world, is, again, it's not just his thing. It is a shared responsibility. It is a shared obligation that they all have. Moreover, one gets gets the sense from the familial enthusiasm. That's what I'm calling it. Do you get that sense of it? He's... It's kind of like in a modern-day Zoom call when you're all masked up and distant. You can see your relatives, and you're all, hey, look, and tell so-and-so. I said hi, and, and everyone's on the camera, hello, and it has those awkward moments, right? It's kind of what was happening. That's when he's writing this out uh, at the end of the letter. This familial enthusiasm, it's more than just a responsibility to Paul, but it is a privilege. It's even a joyful one thus paul's passion became theirs as well for prayer for proclamation and for partnership in the gospel of jesus for for spreading the good news for being about the business again this is 60 years after jesus gathered those 11 disciples and this is now sort of meat on the bones this is what it looks like in beyond, moving beyond theory this is the fruit of those disciples' labors that led up to the Apostle Paul becoming a Christian, being a church planner, spreading the gospel. And it's not just his thing; it's we to be everyone's to be. This is an all-church-wide, collectively, individually. This is what we're to be about. The business we're to be about. All right. Before we conclude, three brief questions, and I'll follow it up with a charge. First question, how are you doing in prayer that is both speaking to God, talking to him and with him, as well as speaking to God about others that is interceding on their behalf to the Lord? In short, how's your prayer life and how might you hear who you know who are good prayers get some ideas but here's just one simple one we're about to do it and uh, as the service progresses the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us. Um, Martin Luther uh, that great reformer once wrote a book a very it's a booklet you could say to his barber uh, about the Lord's Prayer. But how to incorporate it into your daily life, into your daily prayers, using it as a springboard to shape and inform, to expand and expound upon your prayer life. And it is, uh, I think it's called A a Simple Way to Pray. I highly commend it to you. That's one resource, there are many others, but that's a simple one, but it's great, it's fantastic. Just remember, uh, Martin Luther's A Simple Way to Pray. You can get that as a PDF online, you can get it as a free e-reader, and or a, cheap hard, or a cheap paperback book as well to help you pray. Second question, along with prayer, how are you doing in proclamation? That is, telling people about Jesus. How are you doing both, I mean that individually, each person here, each person listening and watching online, but also as a church? I know you're a church in transition, but how are you doing while you're in transition about telling people about Jesus right now. Are you mindful of your behavior? Knowing that how you live as a follower of Jesus matters. If people see credibility, that is, in your profession of Jesus, and so they, they'd even want to hear you out. Are you as adamant about living a life as a follower of Jesus as you are or hopefully are about wanting to tell others about Jesus and vice versa? So the two, in other words, they're not mutually exclusive. Do you see that in this text? The two go together more than we realize. Third question. How are you participating as a church in the partnership in gospel proclamation? Are you a goer? Are you a sender? How might the Lord use each one of you, and I do mean each single person that is a part of this church, use you with your individual distinct gifts, your desires, in in your overall context lot of life to advance the mission and the kingdom of Jesus? Again, again, Consider the breadth of the list of names that Paul mentions. He's not a lone ranger, right? We see that. This is not about him. It's not about him or just his agenda. It's not about any one person. It's about Jesus. It is about advancing his kingdom, not Paul's, not the early church. It's about advancing the kingdom of Christ. We see in Paul a man and a people Passionately partnering together on mission for gospel proclamation and advancement. Prayer, proclamation, partnership. How are you doing in those three things? And how might you strategically improve upon those, even starting today? And finally, a charge, which is also an encouragement. Look with me at uh, verse 17. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the mystery, the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And I think Paul's question to Archippus is also ours. What is your particular ministry that you've received in the Lord? It may not be the upfront public stuff that people take notice of. You may not ever read. You may be a part of this church. Or another church or some ministry, you may never be the public, do what I'm doing or play music, read scripture, pray. But there's a lot of other ministry, isn't there, that happens in the church that goes beyond the Sunday morning or afternoon experience, so to speak, as important as that is. What is your particular ministry that you've received in the Lord? I mentioned most of us aren't, you're not going to get the the calling, most of you, of proclaiming the word of the gospel publicly. You're not going to impact large groups of people, write books, speak at Christian conferences, right? You're not going to be evangelizing. I'm, I'm saying this broadly, thousands of people. But what is your ministry, what is it? What is your particular ministry and how is God using you in everyday life to advance the gospel of Jesus in ordinary yet meaningful ways? Maybe it's through your work or in your home life, which may incidentally also be your vocation, how you live as a student, Maybe you're a goer in missions. Maybe God's preparing you to go on the mission field and serve somewhere. But most of us are going to be senders, supporters, both in prayer and uh, financial. Maybe all you do is pray. Maybe that's your ministry. Maybe you just pray for people. Maybe when you do that, you're, you're, you're even asking, Lord, is, is what I'm doing making a difference? Is praying for people? Does this matter? More than you know. John Calvin wrote this. He says, to make intercession for men, for people, right? To make intercession for people is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them. One sees such love In Epiphras in verse 12, when Paul writes that he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured of all the will of God. Dear brothers and sisters of Covenant Life Church, don't underestimate your supposedly meager prayers as you partner with others in gospel proclamation. Whatever it is, whatever your specific gift that God has bestowed upon you is, Whatever your contribution, your participation, and maybe you're sitting there going, I, I don't really know what it is. I, I, don't, I don't know. How do I find out? Well, ask. Ask somebody. Ask a close friend or a family member. Ask somebody here. Ask Pastor Aiden. What do you, what do you think my gift? What do you see? What evidence of God's grace do you see in me that I could play a role in, in the advancing the great commission of Jesus? See what people have to say. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And in doing so, dear saints, may we all together, in transition, come what may, increase our passion for prayer, proclamation, and partnership. May we all be so captivated and motivated by the gospel of Jesus The one whose kingdom we now share in by his unfathomable grace in whom we have redemption, Paul writes, and the forgiveness of sins. And so may Paul's final words go with us as we conclude the letter. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we pray. Praise you for transferring us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We who were once alienated from and hostile towards you are now fully and forever reconciled to you because of Jesus' sinless life, his unjust death, and his glorious, surprising, history-altering resurrection and ascension. And so we now have the inestimable privilege to partake in advancing his kingdom, praying, proclaiming, and partnering. Lord, would you empower us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Help this church, every single person, no matter how seemingly insignificant they think they may be in terms of their contributions or their efforts, to be a people on mission, knowing that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you and that you're with us always, even to the end of the age. And so in and through us with the saints across the globe, may the matchless name of Jesus reign supreme. We ask that you would do this forever and ever and ever. Amen.